Today we are going to conclude Romans chapter 8, uh, which will thus conclude the second movement of the book of Romans. If you, if you were with us early on, and if you remember, Romans is broken up into four movements of thought. So the way that we're breaking it down is as follows. We look at first chapters 1 through 4. That was January to Easter we looked at this, and that was how the gospel reveals God's righteousness. Then we went into 5 through 8, and 5 through 8 is how the gospel gives us new life particularly new life in the Holy Spirit, which that's where we've been parked really ever since Easter. It's been, it's been phenomenal. Uh, and so we've been there leading up to there. And I really hope we are able to do that justice. But after today, we're going to move into chapter 9. Uh, and really, chapters 1 through 8, even though they're two different sections, they kind of do go together. And they really nicely prepare us for what we'll get to in 9 through 11. In 9 through 11, which we're going to do next week, we're going to begin, is going to be, if I'm just being completely honest with you, it's going to be one of the most, it's going to be a difficult one to navigate. It's some of the most complicated passages in the entire Bible. Please be patient with us. Hang with us. Let, let's learn together on that. Uh, it, it's a very important section, and it really does fit with the rest of Romans, but it'll be, it's very easy, especially if you read it on your own. If you like, go home and you say, I want to read Romans. We're studying Romans. Then you read 8, and then you get to 9, 10, and 11. It can be very easy to feel like, well, this is completely disconnected from what Paul's saying, because 9 through 11 is ultimately about how God, uh, through how Jesus is actually the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel, about God's covenants that he made with Israel. But you can't read 9 through 11 without fully understanding 1 through 8. That's why we spent so much time on 1 through 8 to get to this place. So today we're going to close out uh, that second movement. The first half of the book will be finished, and it's just going to be what I hope to be a really firm, strong foundation for all of the stuff in 9 through 11, and then all the really practical stuff after that. Uh, and, to, and really, 1 through 8, if I could summarize it in really just a few words, it's really about new life in the Spirit. It's about what God wants to do in you and in your life and in me and in my life to make us who we are supposed to be so that we can actually reflect Jesus for who he really is. We can, we can actually be the image bearers of the Son of God to the world. And that is what it's all about. So, um, so, let's, um, so let, let's get into this. Yeah, we, 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 said, we said a couple weeks ago, the culminating moment of Romans 8 is 8.29. And 829 is the verse that says we've been predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, into the image of Jesus. And what that's saying is that the church is supposed to bear the image of Christ to the world. That's what we're supposed to do. Now, if you remember, what we did was we looked a couple of weeks ago first at verse 28. Verse 28 is a very famous passage most of us are very familiar with uh, that says that all things work together for those who love God, for good, for those who love God. And, and we showed you why it's, it's a more sensible and arguably more accurate translation would actually look something more like this. All things work together because of those who love God or even by means of those who love God. Because we, you and I, the church, because we are actually conformed into the image of Jesus, and then our lives thus become the very avenue for God to demonstrate his love through. That's us. That's the big idea that Romans culminates to in the first, is the fir in the first eight chapters. We are conformed into the only image that can actually transform the world. 
And today's teaching does require that we first come to grips with that and we understand that. So uh, Chris, uh, last week, or last time we taught, he taught us verses 31 through 37. And today, to close out eight, I'm only going to read just the last two verses. It's just going to be 8, 38 through 39. And make this note, please. This is going to be a message both on Romans 8, 38 and 39, but also kind of a recapping big idea of the entire entire second movement. So let's read together, uh, and then we'll pray, because I didn't pray yet, and then we will get into this. This is Romans 8, 38 and 39. It says, For I am sure, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we invite you into this room. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this room. And Lord, may we be changed by the reading of the Word of God today, by the reading of the Holy Scriptures. May, Lord, we not view this through the lens of our lives in the uh, worldviews that we already have, in the mindsets that we already have, but may, Lord, we be transformed into what this actually is saying, both to the church in Rome and also to us today, Father God. May it be alive in our lives, Father God, giving us practical application of how to move forward for you. Holy Spirit, right now, we just pray, Lord, that you would be here, that you would speak through me, that everything that you would have me to say, I would say. And everything else would just fall to the ground before it ever even comes out of my mouth. We love you, and we need you, and we're excited for all you're doing in our community. You hear me pray? Amen. Amen. So an author named Donald Harmon Atkinson, in his book, St. Saul, he builds a case for why the letters of Paul are actually the most reliable sources that we get in all of the New Testament. Uh, even when you're looking for an account of Jesus and to get an understanding of Jesus, he says you always should look to Paul uh, first. Now, obviously, there's, that's arguable because the Gospels are all about Jesus. But his argument for that is because particularly Paul wrote his letters and even himself died before 70 AD. Now, 70 AD was when the temple was destroyed. Uh, when when the, the temple was completely destroyed, and so where the gospel writers wrote a lot about, it had re- recordings of Jesus saying that the temple would be destroyed, the works where they actually released and actually wrote down and passed between each other that were talking about that actually weren't, didn't, weren't done until after the temple was destroyed. That was all, all that material was written after. So, but one thing that Paul did is he grasped this and he talked about this before it ever even happened. And one thing that Paul emphasized in much of his writing pre-temple destruction was the concept that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You yourself are holy ground. Which, to a hearer in that day, that would have been kind of absurd. Because to them, the temple was a physical place that was standing. You could physically go to this place when you needed to make a sacrifice. You'd go there, you'd make a sacrifice. When you needed to be close to God, you'd go there and you'd be close to God. You'd need to go to learn the scriptures. You'd go there to learn the scriptures. The idea that that same power actually dwells in you, that was completely foreign to them. And another place in 2 Corinthians um, 3, Paul actually says that we ourselves are a letter or a letter of recommendation or an epistle for others to read. 
He's, he, what he's saying is like, you, you, your life and my life, we should live our lives so well that before Paul ever gets there, they already know what we're like because we've lived the love of Jesus out so much. And whether they have a letter or not, or they have the Holy Scriptures or not, we are that in these communities. People want what we have because they see us have it. In, in that passage in Corinthians, he actually says that uh, we are written, like our lives are written not with ink, but by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of the living God. And again, everything in Romans 5 through 8 is all about us leading us to be all that we can be in the life that the Spirit empowers us for and creates us to be. So after Paul reaches kind of that critical moment where he explains in Romans 8, 28 and 29 that we are uh, conformed to the image not of God, we talked about this, but of the Son of God, of Jesus. We have an actual physical image of Jesus. This is what we're supposed to look like. Like, once we get through that point, he then goes into this final song of praise in which he says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. So first he says, not life nor death, which I'll come back to in a minute. Uh, and then he says, angels or rulers. Now, the reason that this was such a big deal angels or rulers, is because uh, angels were a really big deal in that day. The rabbis actually believed that every single thing that existed in the world had an angel. All the way down to blades of grass. They're literally like, that blade of grass has an angel. But the problem with that was they didn't, and this might explain a little bit of why he's saying this can separate us, is they didn't, people didn't really view angels as a good thing in that day. They don't view angels the way that we do now. There's a kind of a superstition in that day that was being spread, the angels were angry toward humankind. And in fact, they were actually angry at God for creating man. So obviously, like all the times that the angels showed up, you know, we kind of create some of these things just from our own superstitions. Like these angels show up all the time and everybody's afraid, right? They have to always curb their fear because it's a fearful thing. Uh, it's, not, it's not always positive, even when in the Bible it is actually there for a positive reason. People get terrified. But Paul says angels and rulers. Now, by rulers, he's not talking about kings and queens. He's talking about rulers like he's talking about in Ephesians 6, when he says, you don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but with rulers and cosmic powers and spiritual forces. What Paul is saying is even the cosmic forces, even the angels that you maybe believe, whether they're doing this or not, that they want to get in the way of you and God, None of it can get in the way of you and God. It's, it's actually really important to grasp the fact that where, yes, there is a spiritual realm, and yes, there is a spiritual war with real spiritual enemies, those forces do not have the power or the ability to separate you from the love of God. Now, notice this. It says that, there's no, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. It does not say, though, that we are separate from these things. It says that even in the midst of those things, God will still hold on to us. It's a very big difference. And this is what I think the death nor life thing kind of really comes into play. For a lot of us, life is a roller coaster. Death is kind of the obvious thing. Obviously, nobody wants to die. Everybody thinks that if you die, that, that could that separate you? You're afraid of that. But that's actually, but, but, but life in general is a roller coaster. And it, life brings some incredibly dark moments for people. And it can be easy to believe in life that God's not here. But what Paul is saying here is, he's saying, actually, God is with us. So fr from the eternal angle, you could say it this way. You could say, nobody and nothing can come from the outside in and destroy your eternity. Nobody can do that. 
If something in this present age manages to take your life, you still win, right? Because what does Paul say? He says, to be absent from the body is to be with Christ. He says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. We know that one, so we don't need to park there. But from this here and now sense, life, remember, it, it, says, it says not the things happening now or the things to come. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. So in a few minutes, I'm going to kind of begin to give you kind of a big theological idea uh, about this passage as it pertains to what comes next, because I want to frame us for where we're going to go in the next couple of weeks. That's kind of what today's about. Uh, But in Romans 9, that's going to be a groundwork for where we're going. And for for right now, I want us to put ourselves in the place of God's people, because that's who we are. We are the church. We are God's people. And we are called to be the means by which all things work together for good. We're called to be the people who make sure that this happens. People conformed into the image of Christ. Now, if we're conformed into the image of his son, into the image of Christ, we don't just walk through life with suffering and watching it happen because we know that suffering can't separate people from God. Because we're actually the image bearers of God. In fact, verse 37 says we are more than conquerors. God, Chris talked about this word, uh, the, the hypernicomen. Uh, he talked about it, how he, he called us, we're hyper-Nike people. I don't know if, if for those of you who were there a couple of weeks ago, he, 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 he correlated that to, to Nike and uh, how we're super conquerors. The word literally means for conquerors, it literally means to utterly defeat beyond the norm. So, like, to me, I think of if you conquer something, it's like somebody comes into a village and they just totally wipe it out. Like, they do way more than they needed to do. It's way out of control, but that's what they do. But if we're more than conquerors for good, and we actually are the means by which good is done in the world, what that means is that we actually have the ability to completely overcome evil with good. We have the ability to completely drown out darkness with light. And in a world where that's the the church, that's what the church is, would that make it not easier? Like if the church is actually living that way, would that not make it easier for people to see, wow, nothing can separate us from the love of God. God's people just keep showing up. I just got evicted. Somebody from the church steps in and says, hey, we will help you get back on your feet. Somebody showed up. You could find yourself in whatever the most impossible situation may be. And then a Christian, a follower of Jesus, comes through and by way of the Holy Spirit, kind of giving them uh, a way when there is no way, the church shows up. And all things work together for good, whatever it is. So Matthew Barnett, he he was Don and I's pastor in Los Angeles, uh, tells this story. In fact, it, it's, it was probably one of the hardest stories that I've ever heard in my entire life. It's an awful story, and I'll give it to you very, very briefly in a minute. Uh, I heard this story years ago, uh, years before I ever even walked onto the campus of the Dream Center. And from the moment that I heard it, the Dream Center was just sort of embedded in my mind. This place was like, so, so much so that when, when we moved to Los Angeles, we had to at least go. We had to see this place for ourselves. We had to step foot on this campus. And we didn't move to Los Angeles when we did that. You guys know this, to do ministry. But it just, the rest became history because you get somewhere and God draws you in and it's so compelling and you have to do it. Here's a picture of the Dream Center for those of you who are unfamiliar with what it is. It's a 400,000 square foot hospital on a hill right before Hollywood uh, in Los Angeles, California. This entire thing is the Dream Center. You see it kind of with the cityscape behind it. It's like its own city. It's a fantastic, fantastic place. And one of the ministries that they had there, they have so many different ministries for hurting people. And one of them 
uh, was uh, the ministry, it was a ministry they had to prostitutes. And what, what they would do was they would, would in the evenings, in the nights, in the, they would go out with the van to some of these places that the prostitutes would frequent. And someone would get out of the van and they would walk up to her and they would hand her a rose. And they would tell her that Jesus loves her, that tell her that there are people who love her. And they would say this. They say, in a few minutes, the van is going to pull back around. Which, when I think about that now, I think, well, that's actually really sketchy too. But, but it seemed to get it done at that time. And they, they told them, if you want to change your life, get in this van. We will protect you. We will help you. See, to me, that's all things work together because of those who love God. Well, one story goes that she got in. And uh, her pimp or her pimps, I don't know if it was one or more, they didn't like that very much, and they actually watched it happen. And they were watching her as she got in this van, and so they actually followed the van. And the van knows, okay, this pimp is following us, so they called ahead to the Dream Center, and they said, hey, they're following us. We're kind of being attacked. We're trying to help this girl. Now, the Dream Center is a drug rehab center, among other things, with hundreds of people who had come out of gains and off of drugs and off of alcohol. And for many of them, this was an alternative to a prison sentence. So they, were, they could either go to prison or they could go to this place, the Dream Center, this place on this hill in Hollywood. And even though it was a very strict environment, it was far better than prison, and it does a transformative work on those who go through it. And so what they did was they all gathered on this place called the Blacktop. This is what we call the Blacktop of the Dream Center. It's this parking lot. The Dream Center is built into a hill, so you're actually on the seventh floor right here, and this is the parking lot that it's on. That's where you pull in and then continue into the Dream Center. So they all gathered. And then when this van pulled in and then the pimp pulled in behind them, they were met with literally an army of people who made it very, very clear that that girl did not belong to them anymore and to never come back, and they never came back. I think they're more tactful in their methods now, and I think they have more safety things in place. Even when we were there, like, is this place an all right place for us to, like, have a daughter and live? Because it's, you know, they're doing crazy stuff, but it was awesome. But all things work together by means of those who are called to be conformed into the image of Jesus. All things work together when we, the church, are turned into people who actually look like Jesus. Who actually reach down into the most broken places and pick up the most vulnerable people. Now, I'm going to give you some impossible scenarios. Something to wrestle with. And I'm, I'm only going to be able to scratch the surface on the answer to this. I mean, we, you guys know this. We believe in conversation here. It's, it's a core value at our church. Uh, we wrestle with the scriptures. We wrestle with the promises that we find within the scriptures. We know that God is good but we also know that the world is broken. And one of the stories of the women who were rescued, she had a baby. And when she was going through this, going while she was doing this prostitution, she didn't have anywhere to take the baby, so she would take it to work with her. And it, the baby cried a lot, and the baby got in the way of business, and the pimps they didn't, that, worked, that she worked for, they didn't like it very much. And then one day when she was with them, one of them went up and shot the baby right in her arms because it was costing them money. Of course, she's absolutely devastated. Not long after that, she's rescued by the Dream Center. But it's kind of too late, seems like. She entered into the protection of the church and into other protection services that the church was a part of. 
after all that. And she entered into it carrying the weight of all that. Now, I'm not sharing that with you for shock value. It really happened. And the reason that I wanted to share it now in this message is because I want us to realize, first of all, that we're the church, but also what happens when it doesn't? What happens when it doesn't work together for good? What happens when there's nothing that the Dream Center can do that'll make your baby come back to life? That's a bit more complicated, right? Now, of course, we believe that death could not separate that child from the love of God. But the life that he left behind for his mother, that's when it becomes easier to see how maybe life could actually be what separates you from God. That's, that's why this is promise that Paul claims here about how life can't separate you. That's why it's so important. In her story, she had every reason to believe that she was separated from God. I mean, no, she didn't pull the trigger. I, I, and I don't know what she thought because I never had a conversation with her in my life. But I know the weight of what you must carry with that, that your life and your lifestyle and your choice of careers or, or not choice, whatever it might be, whatever led to it, ended up having this happen. It's a lot to carry. It's a heavy burden. And it's ridiculously heavy if you carry it alone. And from what I remember of that particular story, the only thing that the church was really able to offer her was the chance to not carry it alone. Uh, In fact, Pastor Matthew himself, he sat with her and he cried with her and cried with her for hours and hours and hours. That's really the story. The whole story goes. He just sat with her until, until something clicked just so that she would know she doesn't have to face this alone. That's the whole story. The story is he sat with her for as long as she needed. He sat with her. Because God is not like the broken world that rejected him. God is like the prodigal son's father, who the moment the son returns, he drops everything and he runs to him. Nothing is more important than people. And that's why a simple story of sitting with someone is one of the greatest reflections of the heart of God that I've ever seen. A simple story of him sitting with someone changed my life. It's that kind of that groans too deep for words moment that we've been talking about. How the world sometimes is just so broken that you don't know what you can do. And there's nothing you can do. But you can sit there and you can make sure that you don't face it alone. It's that let's put tragedy that we cannot explain. Let's take it and let's put this in the hands of God. And we can't make this right, but let's give it to God who can. Because he cares even more about justice than you do. We can't sort suffering out for you in one sermon. But we can say this. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Now we're preparing to move into the third movement of Romans. And uh, it will be difficult to read this as people who are not Hebrew people living in America. Chapters 9 through 11 of Romans are some of the most theologically difficult passages. Again, hang, hang with it. After you get through that, it gets incredibly practical every single section after that. But I want to lay this foundation for you based on the scripture that we just heard to help you begin just, it's, just, it's just a foundation to help you begin diving into the following scriptures that we're going to get into next week. So we have to think about this concept. Paul ends this incredible chapter by saying, nothing separates us from the love of God. And it's clear that Paul is talking in these coming sections about the Jews, 
about people who had been giving all these amazing promises, and yet so many of them rejected those promises and ultimately killed Jesus. And Paul, right, is claiming that Jesus actually was the fulfillment of the prophecies and the promises. And though we consider chapter 9 to be kind of the sort of the new movement of thought for Paul, it's very important that we treat this for what it is, Romans 8 for what it is. It's, it's the culmination of the first half. Now, if you, if you look, and it's a foundation for where we're going. So if you look back at the end of chapter 2, which we're going to refer to back several times coming up, Paul does this sort of build into this, and he's talking about the Gentiles. Uh, and then he, then he begins talking about the Jews. And, they, and he answers a question basically in 3.1 where it says, is it even of any value anymore to be Jewish? Like, at this point of the story, if all this is true, does it even matter that we're still Jewish? And Paul, who is also a Jew, tells his fellow Jews, yes, it does matter. Their story still matters. One of the reasons for it is he says, you've been entrusted with the oracles of God. They were the ones given the message to carry the rest, to carry to the rest of the world, this hopeful message of God. So what Paul's telling them in leading up to this in chapter 3 all the way through chapter 9 is you are still called. You are still called because nothing can separate you from the love of God. But think about it. Paul's about to write a bunch of things to Jews about how they rejected Jesus. That's where it's going. I know you maybe didn't read ahead, but that's where it's going. And when you read the following chapters, the big idea is Israel's basically thinking, God, your word failed. You failed us on this. It didn't happen the way that it was supposed to happen. God, you didn't show up. Probably not much different than that mother felt at the Dream Center in that moment. Because to Israel, justice did not look like mercy. It didn't look like a crown of thorns or of a person of meekness. It didn't look like turn the other cheek and it didn't look like love your enemies. It looked like destroy your enemies. It looked like a ruler who they envisioned who would overthrow the Roman Empire the same way that Rome was built. And then Jesus shows up. He, he lives. He dies. He resurrects. And in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus, he starts walking through with some of his followers the entire Old Testament, all these significant moments, the promises and the prophecies that were given to Israel. And he shows these followers how it was all about him. It was all about Jesus, and yet they killed him. Okay, please try to follow this. I, I'm hoping I can articulate this properly. Because we've taken a long time to build this, because every detail of it matters. But we, we've shared some of these stories with you before, and we're going to kind of recap on a couple of them right now. But we need to look at this in light of where Paul's taking this. There, there are three very significant covenants with the Hebrew people uh, that meant everything. The covenant with Abraham, the covenant on Mount Sinai with Moses, and the promise to King David. Those were the three legs that everything Jewish stood on. We've talked to some degree about it in this series, about all three of them. Abraham was the first one. It was the promise that he would be the father of many nations. God takes him outside. Uh, he sees the stars. He says, can you count the stars? No, God, I can't, I can't count the stars. He says, you, just like that, that will be, you will be the father of many nations. To a, a guy who's almost 100 years old, has no kids, how am I going to do that? God says, it's going to happen. You're, you're going to be it. And then what happens, again, we talked about this, I think we talked about it on Easter, is what happens is Abraham then goes and he cuts a bunch of animals in half. And everybody's like creeped out by this. What are you doing? Why are you cutting the animals in half? Right? Because that sounds crazy because we don't understand how things worked back then. But that was what was called the process of making a covenant in those days was called cutting a covenant. 
And what they would do was they would take these animals, uh, so they would, ha- they would agree with the terms of their covenant between the two parties, that they would take these animals and they would cut them in half, and then both parties would then walk between the pieces of these animals, and they would recite the words to the covenant, and they would recite something along the lines of, if I fail to keep this covenant, may it be done to me like these animals. May I be torn to pieces. May I be destroyed. But in the story found in Genesis 15, what happens is Abraham cuts these animals, he prepares the way to walk these pieces, and then God knocks him out. So he can't walk the pieces. Because God knows Abraham will never, ever be able to be faithful to that covenant. It's way too much for him to handle. God then, while Abraham is knocked out, himself shows up and he walks the pieces. All by himself saying, I'll be destroyed if it's not kept. Which, of course, we know Abraham didn't keep the covenant. It's literally one chapter later, he's not trusting God, sleeping with the Hagar. Story after story, Abraham didn't keep it, his descendants didn't keep it, nobody after him kept it. And who was eventually torn apart? Jesus. God. The point Nothing separates us from the love of God. Even covenants that are impossible to keep, God will do whatever God has to do for you. So for Israel, when you get to Romans 9, you've got to realize this dilemma. They realize, okay, if we decide you're right, Jesus is Messiah, what do we do about that? Because we killed him. Nothing separates us. We didn't keep it. God still did. The second really important Covenant is what we call the Ten Commandments. Uh, Mount Sinai. And w- w- um, Mount Sinai, Moses, and Mount Sinai, it's Exodus 20. Uh, we've talked about this a few different times. We'll talk about it more, actually a lot coming up in these coming, coming weeks into nine. But the Ten Commandments, as you know, if you've been under our teaching for very long at all, it was not a set of rules. In Greek, it's uh, the Septuagint. In Greek, it's Decalogos or the Decalogue. It's, it's literal as the ten words is what it literally means. It was what was considered to be a ten-worded ketubah. A ketubah in that day was a marriage contract. It was a marriage covenant between God and Israel. It was the terms of their marriage. It was a covenant. And of course, Israel broke it. So when you're reading through the Old Testament, like we all do, like we love to just read through Jeremiah, and as we're reading through Jeremiah or whatever book it is, and all of a sudden you get to God saying, I'm going to issue Israel a certificate of divorce. You're like, what is this? Well, that's what it is. They didn't keep the marriage covenant. That's what he's talking about. They broke the covenant again and again and again. And even though there are passages about how God issues them a certificate of divorce, he always takes them back. In Jeremiah 31, God actually promises a new covenant, which he says, I'm promising you a new covenant that will come. And he says, in this new covenant, all of you will know God from the least to the greatest. Nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God. Then the third is sometimes considered a covenant. Sometimes it's just called a prophecy or a promise. But the prophet Nathan speaks to King David and he he speaks a word over him and he says, David, from your seed will come a king and that king will reign forever and ever and ever. And man, Israel really, they liked this one. They held on to this one. The problem with that 
It's 14 generations later, according to Matthew's gospel, the Babylonians attacked Israel. And they put the entire nation of Israel into exile. And before that happened, Israel had a temple. Solomon built it. It was beautiful. And in the temple, there was this place called the Holy of Holies. And the Israelites believed that if anybody who wasn't the high priest would enter that space, they would immediately die. Because of the power of God. It was this sacred space that they've created where God and God alone lived. And only the high priest could go, and he could only go on Yom Kippur one day a year. And that was it. Other than that, it was a place nobody could go. Now that, to me, is the definition of separation. So the Babylonians come. And they begin killing everyone as they invade Jerusalem and they invade Israel. And they, they begin killing anybody who's too old. And they begin killing the children of the Israelites. And they, they kill them um, by bashing their heads against rocks. And the Hebrews, they're watching as this is happening. And, and they're watching as their wives and their children are being taken from them. And what are they wondering? They're probably wondering, God, where are you? Then the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar himself, he comes in. And he enters the temple. And Israel watches, right? They watch as the enemy king then walks into their sacred space. The holy of holies and removes everything in it. And of course they're thinking, okay, good, right? The king defied God. This is our big moment. It's all about to end, right? Because only God's allowed in that space. The moment he goes in, he'll die. So they're excited probably, right? But then they watch as he walks out with his life and all the furniture from the Holy of Holies. Everything of value in that place. And suddenly there's a sinking reality to the Jewish people in that moment that God did not show up for them. They locked God into this one space. They did not let anybody else go see him. And apparently, at least in that one moment, he was not in there. When, when Shane Willard was here last, last year, he talked about Psalm 137. And Psalm 137 is a super brutal verse, passage. If you don't understand it, you think God is evil to say that. Because it's not God that's saying it, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a priest who's writing this psalm, and it's, the priest is in Babylon. And in the psalm says, blessed are those who bash the children's heads against rocks. And you're like, that's, who would bless that? What kind of a God would bless? Like, he walked us through that. It's very powerful the way that he did it. Of course, we don't understand the backstory of that. And it, that's not what God is like, of course. Shane did this whole thing on that. But that psalm was written by an Israelite priest who was in exile in Babylon, who had watched his own people's children be killed right before their eyes. And from exile, what's he do? He writes this poem, and in that poem, he makes this plea to God. And he says, God, you didn't seem to show up that day. At least from everything I could tell, I couldn't find you. We couldn't see you. But I'm still going to trust that you will show up. And when you do show up, he says, may you please repay them for what they did to us. It's kind of this human reaction that's probably no different than most of us would write in our circumstances. God, they took everything from us. Can you please bless whoever takes everything from them? I love the way that Shane put this in his sermon. He said that he was standing right here and he said this. He said, this is what you do with anger. You don't take revenge yourself. You leave it at the throne of the one whose throne is made of justice and righteousness. And you let him do his thing. Kind of like we've been saying, right? God wants justice. Whatever that looks like, even more than you do. The only difference is he actually knows what it should look like. And we certainly don't. But what this guy's saying, this priest is saying, is he's, God, I'm trusting that you're going to do something to make this right. 
So Israel was put in exile in Babylon. And they, they stripped the king of his power. And suddenly now Israel had no king. The family line of David no longer was royal. Which, that kind of put a squash on that great promise that the seed would just last forever. He would be king forever. He would reign forever. So now, all these years later, the exile is over. The temple actually is rebuilt. They rebuild the temple. And again, in this temple, they build a holy of holies. A place that only God could go. And there was this curtain that was called the veil. And this veil separated the presence of God from the sinful world that man had created. And nobody could cross over that veil except for the priest on Yom Kippur. But now Israel was under Roman rule. And they didn't have their own king. And they wondered, when's the king going to rise? Maybe he never will. We don't have royal blood anymore. And then this guy Jesus comes. And he starts telling them these crazy things like, hey, carry that soldier's pack for two miles when they ask you to carry it for one. And what do they do with Jesus? They kill him. They were not faithful to the covenant. They even killed God. And they're questioning the entire promise. And Paul here starts out by saying to them, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Even killing him. Even though you are the reason that he hung on that tree in the first place. But when they killed him, when Jesus died, Matthew 27, 51 says that the veil in the temple was literally torn in two. Like literally, it just tore from top to bottom. Meaning the separation was destroyed. Making that tent for God no longer there, and now suddenly the presence can go out beyond that, making his tent now in people all across the world. And a couple of decades later, in AD 70, the entire temple was destroyed and it would never get rebuilt again. Now, we've said this to you guys many times over the years for many reasons, but the temple had to be destroyed. It had to. It had to go. It was an idol. And for many, as long as it stood, they would never be able to grasp what God was actually doing. It was an idol that limited God to a singular space and separated brokenness from holiness. But when that veil actually tore, the two became one. A broken person, a flawed person, could also now be a holy person. Because the mess that they're living in is sl slowly being conformed more and more and more into the image of Jesus every single day, into someone who has an inseparable relationship with Almighty God, because when God looks at the secrets of your heart, if you have Jesus in you, he now sees Jesus, the perfect one. What are the veils that need to be torn down in us? What are the veils in our churches? What are the veils in our city? where we're locking God in a room and we're separating him from the world who needs him when we're meant to be carriers of hope and carriers of light and carriers of Jesus to the world. The thing that was so significant about the Jews, it's, it's Romans 3.1. They were always the ones who were entrusted with the oracles. They're always supposed to be the ones bringing God into the places that seem like hell on earth. And yet so many of their systems were built around separation. But nothing separates us from the love of God. May we make 
so positive and work so hard to make sure that we are not the reason that others feel separated from the love of God. You know, the eighth chapter of Romans is considered by many to be the most theologically significant chapter in the entire Bible. It begins by saying there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. The things that you have done, the baggage that comes with you as you come to Christ, it all is now taken on by Christ and it is not held against you. It ends there. So it begins by saying there's no condemnation. And then the entire chapter ends by saying there's no separation for those who are in Christ. So if there's one place in the entire Bible where you can be assured that God is not going to leave your side, no matter what you're going through, no matter how much you've screwed up, no matter how lowly you think of yourself, and no matter how much pain you're in, it's Romans chapter 8. If there's one place in the entire Bible that you know that you know, that you know, that you know that you are the son of the living God. You are an heir of God and you are an image bearer of Jesus. It is the eighth chapter of Romans. If there's one place in the entire Bible when you can rest assured the Holy Spirit lives within you and that even when it feels like God is missing and he's not there, that the Spirit is praying for you, and he's interceding for you. And he knows what you need even when you don't know you need it. It's Romans chapter 8. I'll end with this kind of example, kind of story. I know that this sermon, just like this passage and all the ones we referenced, likely they've left you with more questions than they have answers. Some of these I think we're going to be able to sort out talking about in the next few weeks. Some will take years. Some of them are age-old questions that we may never come to the end of. But that's what it means to be in community together and wrestle with things together. We're never going to stop searching. We're never going to stop talking about it. But our family was on vacation a couple weeks ago. I, uh, I told you all a few, a few weeks ago, it's for us too. I know a lot of people are going through a lot of things. For us, it's been a, a ride lately. And, and we, we've seen God do so many amazing things in our community this summer. But much of our own home and our own family and even some of the extended family and the things we kind of share with you, some of it, it just felt like we're hanging on by a thread. And to be honest, in the midst of all that God did, it was very easy for me to wonder, where are you, God? And we ended up being blessed by someone who let us stay in their, their cabin up at Lake Superior for just a couple of nights. And so we, we drove up there and we, we spent a couple of days there and then we took our tent and we camped for a few other nights and it was fun. And, and the cabin that we stayed at had these, these kayaks that we would take out on the lake. And uh, it, 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 was, it was amazing. Uh, the kids would even do it. Like, they would all go out. It was a lot of fun. And um, so and one morning, I, I got in the kayak, and I, I rode out to what felt like the middle of the lake. Now, of course, Lake Superior is like the biggest body of water practically in the world. It's the second, I think it's the second largest lake of freshwater. Uh, it's like 350 miles long, 160 miles wide. It's very, very large. I was maybe a third of a mile out, if even. So I was not halfway in the lake, so don't worry. <laughs> but I felt like I was in the middle of this thing. And I rode out there that morning to just, just do some reading. And I was reading the book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering by Tim Keller. And I was reading this, this, this stuff about suffering and pain. I was doing it for a, a paper that I'm writing. And I was reading all these stories of people who were questioning God. And, 
uh, God, what's this coming from? And this pain, and it's just stories in the Bible and personal stories. And I was just, I'm sitting out there in the middle of all this, and I'm just thinking about my life and about my family and about the things that God has brought us through and all the things that we continue to navigate. And I just felt a peace in that space. Because life tries to separate us from the love of God. Life is noisy. Life is brutal. Life gives you reasons to think that you're all alone. Life has this way of making you anxious if you give it too much power. But there was something for me at least to, about reading a book about suffering in the middle of floating in one of the most beautiful lakes in all of the world, surrounded by God's creation and his absolute beauty, that you can't help but know, man, people go through a lot, but God is still good. And nothing can separate us from the love of God. He's in it all. He's in the calm and he's in the storm. One of my favorite parts about the book of Job is in, verse, in chapter 38 when it says God shows up for Job in the storm. That's how he shows up to the guy going through this enormous storm. Right? That's what God does. He shows up where he's needed. There is no condemnation. There is no separation. Take time this week to look around. Look at creation. It is absolutely filled with his glory. And as we're going to find in the next chapter, even though sometimes it's going to feel like God is silent, or he's gone, or he's failed you. The word of God has not failed. It didn't fail Israel, and it will not fail you. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord.